everybody here today. It's crazy to think it's September. Can you believe it? I remember when the kids started summer, uh, we said, we got 15 weeks at home. Craziness. And those 15 weeks are now gone. Uh, it is the fall. We're entering into the fall, and uh, September is just kind of wild to think. In our day and age, I think it's fair to say that we're growing accustomed to being aware of and alert to potential threats to our lives, right? I mean, the last 20 years since 9-11, since we saw those two towers come crashing down after a plane flew into them, I mean, that made us aware of and alert to uh, terrorism in our world, right? Changed our lives. We've been living with alert levels uh, given by the Department of Homeland Security. How alert should we be? When you think of the last six months that we have been consumed with this pandemic, the coronavirus. Uh, you know, the, you had the, in the midst of the last six months, just the presidential election and the racial relations that, uh, yeah, that's caught our attention, but basically the last six months, the, the pandemic has been our primary focus. So we're aware of and we're alert to the threat of global pandemics in a way that we have never been really aware of and alert to before. It's just the world in which we live in. Well, in our passage today, we see that Jesus wants to make us aware of and alert to a very real threat, a threat that surely has pandemic proportions. To say it more personally, Jesus is revealing to us, he is telling us about uh, a very real and present danger to you, to me, to us. It makes it personal that in many ways we should be on high alert regarding this threat to entering the kingdom. If you remember, that's what we've been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, right? And last week, Jesus talked about the narrow gate himself, that in order to enter the kingdom, one must go through the narrow gate. And so today, he talks to us about a real, present danger to us entering the kingdom that can subtly weasel its way in and lead us astray. Jesus wants us to be aware of this threat and alert to it. So the question is, what is this threat? And how can we recognize it when it's there? Maybe we ask the question, how can we be protected from this threat? For that, we turn to the Word this morning. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. We're getting to the end of this Sermon on the Mount. A couple more messages, and then uh, our year-long journey in the Sermon on the Mount will come to an end. Matthew chapter 7, 15 through 20. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? 
So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 20, thus you will recognize them by their fruit. The grass withers and the flowers fade and the word of our God abides forever. And everybody said, amen, amen. Okay, growing up, I watched a lot of TV. Doreen knows that because my intelligence has been long-term affected by that, right? I watched a lot of TV. I'm part of those statistics. Matter of fact, Grandpa, you and I watched a lot of TV together. Remember? Yeah. You know what we watched, right? We watched Tom and Jerry. And that laugh you just heard, I just, it's like there. It's just at. Right? He laughed a lot. That's why I like to watch it because I like my Grandpa laughing. Right? Everybody loves Grandpa laughing. So we watched Tom and Jerry. We watched the Three Stooges. The marathon on New Year's Eve every year. The Three Stooges. Right? And also... The Looney Tunes. Raise your hand if you ever watched the Looney Tunes. Yeah, we know Looney Tunes. Yeah, that's right. Well, there's a particular Looney Tune uh, skit that I was reminded of uh, for whatever reason uh, when I uh, was preparing this message. It's called The Sheepish Wolf. Does anybody remember the 1942 skit, The Sheepish Wolf? No one does. For some reason, I do. Or I was just called to mind. Well, yeah. So this idea of uh, the sheep uh, eating quietly and the sheepdog sleeping under the tree. And then, of course, out into the woods, there is the wolf who looks at the sheepfold. And what does he do? He comes up with an idea. You can see the picture of what he does as it's on the screen. Can you see it? Sorry for the low-res quality. That's all I could come up with. So there's the wolf dressed up like what? A sheep. It's a horrible costume. He's not very good at disguise. Because the whole time you know, and if anybody's looking at it, they're going to know. And even the sheepdog comes to know that this is nothing but a wolf. Because his disguise is so obvious and so poor. So what happens? The sheepdog finally uncovers the wolf. So show that one. See? There's the sheepdog uh, getting the wolf. And then all of a sudden, as he's bragging to the sheep, hey guys, I got the wolf. What does the sheep do? They take off their disguise as well. And the joke's on the sheepdog, that really they were all a bunch of wolves. Ha ha, right? So what's going on there? Well, again, we're seeing that there is really power in subtlety, that, that, that disguise masks. And really, What Jesus is saying to the disciples is this. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He's giving us a warning. He's he's calling us to a high alert. Red level. Beware of false prophets. Beware of false teachers. They're coming to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. On the outside... They look like safe, one of us, sheep. But inside, they're dangerous, they're ravenous, they're wolves. And as you see in the the silly skit, it's the obvious things that would never be dangerous to us. Like if somebody came in here and uh, began to teach 
that Jesus uh, never even existed, that he's not God, that he never died for our sins, that it's all a sham, we would probably go, "Mm, false teacher, and that wouldn't be much of a danger. But Jesus calls us to high alert on something that's disguised, that's not as obvious. That's why it's a danger. So he tells us, beware of false prophets. That's the threat that you need to be alert to and aware of as you strive to enter the kingdom. That's what the danger is. It's the false prophets are disguised in subtlety. No one saw the rest of the sheep being actual wolves because their disguise was so good. That's what we see that Jesus is teaching us today. That the danger is in the subtlety. And I wonder if you, in hearing this call to beware of false teachers and prophets, don't know exactly what I'm talking about. Or maybe you don't. You're not sure how to discern between the wolf and the sheep. The the one that is true and the one that is false in terms of false prophets and false teachers. And I wonder if this might be a helpful little way to navigate through this subtlety uh, that, that, well, this disguise that's really found in subtlety. So I've come up with like four categories to help us think about the words that the false teachers use to subtly disguise who they really are. First of all, they're always talking about Jesus. That's one thing about a false teacher that's disguised but really is a wolf. They constantly talk about Jesus. At the very least, they're talking about God. Right? That's subtlety. It wouldn't be overt. So the first category is this. The Jesus plus teachers. The Jesus plus teachers. The Jesus plus teachers are those who speak of Jesus but they're subtly denying uh, His sufficiency by adding to Him. Yeah, I'm all about Jesus and this. Jesus is really important, but also this. It's the Jesus plus crowd. Right? We know about this in the New Testament, where Paul is talking and confronting the Judaizers. Right? It was Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus wasn't enough. You had to have Jesus, yes, but Jesus plus something else would save you. During the period of the Reformation, it was the Reformers that uh, said that Rome, Roman Catholicism, they were the Jesus plus crowd, right? Justification by faith alone. Alone. The, the, The Roman Catholics said no, plus works. Plus works, plus our own merit. Yes, Jesus, plus works. And so that was their uh, fight against the false teachers, where the emphasis is on works, right? Jesus isn't enough. We must add to Jesus. Jesus' work is not sufficient for our salvation. We need more. I wonder if this particular uh, uh, mentality doesn't subtly find its way in your own thinking. Maybe I can illustrate it in one way. And I think we've all struggled with this. I know I have. Someone asks you the simple question, how is your walk with Christ? Start thinking about that now. How is your walk with Christ? 
immediately you're evaluating your walk with Jesus based on what? Have I been reading my Bible? Have I been praying regularly? Am I giving financially? Right? Am I attending church? Right? Am I uh, treating my spouse or wife uh, or my uh, husband or wife well? Right? You begin to measure the uh, the quality of your relationship with Christ based on what you are doing. Now, again, those things are good things, right? We strive for them. That Jesus has been calling us to a surpassing righteousness, which is applied to many of those things. But isn't it easy for us to evaluate the quality and the essence of our relationship with Jesus in the most simplest of terms based on what we are doing rather than what Jesus himself has already done for us? You're a child of God. You need to be very clear. Your relationship with Christ could not be better. The Spirit of God lives in you. You have all of the gospel promises. You can't make it any better. And so Jesus, with this kind of subtlety, becomes insufficient for us. The Jesus plus crowd. What about the Jesus minus crowd? This group of people speak of Jesus. They always speak of Jesus. But subtly deny the totality of his authority by subtracting from him and ignoring uncomfortable teachings or attributes. Do you know what I'm talking about? We like this part of Jesus. We like this kind of teaching that Jesus gives. We skip the others. We don't like the others. Actually, we might even deny it. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastor in the mid-20th century, for many years, really, spoke about examples of a a teaching that subtracted from the totality of the authority of Christ. He says, he calls them false prophets or false teachers. He said, they rarely tell you of holiness, righteousness, justice, and the wrath of God. He says, they do not emphasize the utter sinfulness of sin and total inability of man to do anything about his salvation. Certain attributes of God. Now we don't want to talk about sin at all. He says, these prophets do not speak of penal substitutionary atonement. He's never seen the work, the cross of Jesus, his death. He's never seen it as a tremendous, holy transaction between the Father and the Son, in which the Father has made the Son to be sin for us and has laid our iniquity upon him. Right? He talks about that, that the cross is really sentimentalized as simply a loving act only, rather than a holy transaction that deals with our greatest issue, sin and wrath. He talks about there's no repentance in any real sense in their preaching, in their teaching. There's no, there's no emphasis on the absolute necessity of entering the straight gate, which we've just talked about. guys have been privy to the Red Letter Christian movement. Basically what we see is let's just focus on the red letters. Forget the others. Forget the Old Testament. 
forgive Paul. Let's ignore that and let's just focus on Jesus, what he said in the red letters. Subtleties that can easily subtract from the totality of Christ. How about the Jesus or crew? Speaks of Jesus but subtly denies his necessity by allowing infinite faith options. That's our pluralistic society. This group of people is all into Jesus, but they relativize him. He's just one of many. Lastly, the Jesus for crowd. They speak of Jesus, but subtly distort the gospel message and God's primary purposes in salvation. Jesus for something else. Jesus is a means to an end. I'm all about Jesus because of what Jesus does for me. Does that make any sense? Like if you're in the midst of a presidential election, and I'm telling you, all sides are pulling out Jesus. They're leveraging Jesus for their particular agenda. Right? So Jesus is for something. I literally saw an advertisement on Facebook that said this. America, God needs your help. Vote for, period. You insert the candidate for fun. America, God needs your help. Vote for, whoop. And I thought, wow. First of all, they know I'm a Christian. So they're manipulating that to get me to see Jesus for something greater. we got to be careful to not use Jesus for something else. That's a distortion of the gospel. And I would also add that the prosperity gospel does this. And in, in its worst sense, the prosperity gospel takes Jesus and makes him a mean to something else. Prosperity. That's our American gospel. It's a distortion. It's false. It's not in the scriptures. If you understand the totality of what the scriptures teach about Jesus and the truth, this is false. So when it comes to recognizing false prophets, it's important to listen closely for the subtlety of their words. Is the teaching adding to Jesus? Is the teaching subtracting from Jesus? Is the teaching relativizing Jesus in any way? Is the teaching using Jesus? We have to listen to the subtlety of their words. And the danger is this, that if we don't listen closely, the false prophets can dangerously lead us off course in slight deviations over time. That's really important for us. What's dangerous about the false teaching as we engage the subtleties of it? I'm no aviator, even though when I saw Top Gun, I thought, shit, I thought, maybe I shouldn't do that. No aviator. But I did read about this rule, the 1 in 60 rule. Anybody know what the 1 in 60 rule is? Yeah, me neither, but I read about it, so now I know about it. The 1 in 60 rule is this, that basically, that for every one degree a plane veers off its course, it misses its target destination by one mile for every 60 miles. Let me break it down for you. If you're off course by just one degree as you fly, after one foot, you'll miss your target by 0.2 inches. Big whoopsie-doo. Right? Trivia. After 100 yards, you're off by 5 feet. 
After a mile, you'll be off by 92 feet. Okay. If you veer off course by one degree flying around the equator, you'll land almost 500 miles behind you. So what is the danger of false teaching? Slight slight subtle teaching that will slowly just lead you astray over time and all you're saying is, hmm, I don't believe you said I am God. Right? We've, have we not seen that in, in, in famous Christians in the last five years and, and beyond? Which shocked at the, at the apostasy that we've seen, people walking away from the faith? Listen, none of these people ever woke up one morning and said, you know, I think I'm going to walk away from Jesus today. No, it was subtle, it was slow, it was one degree off course over time that led them astray, right? We saw this in Scott Harris, and if you see his story, you'll see it was not overnight. It was a progression of interacting with false ideas, unbiblical concepts that led him away. How about the artist Michael Gunger? If you you read the interview with his wife, you see that she talked about the evolution of their ideas over time, which led them to become atheists. You say, I'm good. But if you're buying into the Jesus plus, Jesus minus, Jesus or, Jesus for, and even the slightest degree or any other category, you are slowly but surely finding yourself off course. And you could all of a sudden be like one of them saying, how did I get here? Your life completely transformed away from the narrow of the restrictive way and the narrow gate. One might say that the wolf devours the sheep one bite at a time. So when it comes to recognizing false teaching, we have to listen with our ears to the subtle teaching. But not only that, if you look at what Jesus is saying, He's saying that it's not just listen, it's actually to look, open our eyes. He says in verse 16 and verse 20, you'll recognize them by their fruit. Fruit as a simple, effective way to recognize the type of tree, right? Are, are, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes and figs from thistles? The answer is no. If you want to know if a teacher is true or false, you, you, you recognize them, you examine, you look at their fruit. gets at the DNA of the plant, right? The nature of the tree. What Jesus is saying is that in discovering true and false prophets, you must one must examine the fruit. So the question becomes, what is truth? What does Jesus mean? You'll know them by their fruit. Charles Quarles says this, truths are deeds that reveal the moral character of a person. Simply put, their life. Their life, not just what they say, what we listen to, but what they, how they live, what they do, and the character that's displayed in their actions. He's saying you examine their life. That's why Paul says to Timothy, right, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Why? Because Jesus, again, plays connecting the dots. He says there's a connection between what's someone's teaching and someone's living. We've got to examine their fruit. We've got to look at their lives. We can see that many of the people that have walked away, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing their life. Their life. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones again says, Nature must manifest itself. A healthy tree cannot produce bad fruit. A bad tree, an unhealthy tree, cannot produce good fruit. It, it, it has to express its nature, its essence. That's what Jesus is saying. That in the end, the, the nature of something will manifest itself. So we look at their lives, right? You see this with, with Jerry Falwell Jr. That the light of God shine bright on the darkness of this man's soul. And I pray for his repentance. I'm not excited to share this gospel. This is tragedy. But you look at someone's life, you examine whether they are true or false. The tree is it's a protect, protective thing that God does. He just puts it. It's a purifying thing. When light shines on the truth, when the truth exposes falsehood, it's sad. We should weep. And we should consider our own witness and the, the nature of our own soul, the health of it. But understand this, that is a wonderful act of God to purify and distinguish between true and false for our witness in the world. So we don't just listen with our ears, we look with our eyes. Do we see the gospel fruit in their life? Is there a connection with their Christian message to their Christian living. I love how we have, uh, we've made a lot of mistakes at Renovation Church over the years, and I've been a big part of them, okay? It is what it is. We're, we're seeking the Lord. We're imperfect. We're trusting Him, but the Lord has been gracious to us, and I'm, I'm just grateful for Him. One of the things that I think we've been healthy at is slowly, slowly to empower and lay hands on elders who are teachers. Why? Because we want to see their life first. Not just are they, do they teach well, but do they live consistent with the gospel? We want the congregation to see their life over time. To see the reality, the truth about who these people are. Not just what do they know. Because doctrine and life are inseparably connected. So we must see their life first. Then we lay hands. Yes, teach. Yes, teach. So if we have to use our eyes, the question becomes, how can we see well? How can we see and examine fruit well? Right? Well, I think that is a question for Christians and for churches. So I'm going to give some application here in reference to Christians and churches. But the principle here is this. In detecting counterfeits, how do you train yourself well? Is it by studying the counterfeits? Any bankers out there? No, you, you, you study to get the real thing. In counterfeit detection, right? You've probably heard this illustration a million times in, in, uh, in, in sermons. But it's true. Right? You stare at the real thing. So Christians you're wondering, how do I protect myself from false teaching? How do I have eyes that see, that can examine what, and, and can listen well? Listen, it, it really boils down to some simple things. Read the Bible regularly. Immerse yourself in Scripture. Right? Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You want the truth. Read the Scriptures. Read the Bible. Immerse yourself in it. 
that will be protective to your soul, help you see, be able to discern well. To the degree that you're in the truth, you'll be able to see the counterfeit for what it is. Second, study sound theology routinely. That means grab a book written by a solid author. Study. Study sound doctrine. You know, if you need help in finding good books, see one of the elders. There's a lot of people here that that read well. Study well. You know, I say, I'm not really a reader. I'm not really an intellectual. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm not a huge reader either. I'm not really all that intellectual either. I try to be, but I'm really not. But here's the deal. At the end of the day, everybody's a theologian. Everybody's a theologian. You're all, you all have a view of God. So allow sound theology, sound doctrine, and, and, and the saints of old to shape the way you think and view true and false truth and falsehood. Last thing I'm going to say, and there are a lot of things to be said. Join a local church wholeheartedly. Can I say that? Join a local church wholeheartedly. Membership in a local church that preaches the gospel, the true gospel, and the totality of Scripture will be protected as you engage and submit to it. Right? That's the beauty of how God has ordered the church. Elders and deacons and members, the one another ring of the New Testament is protected. As you engage the preaching of the Word here on Sunday mornings, as you interact with the application of that Word on Wednesdays in missional communities, as you're in a formation group where someone's saying, what's God teaching you in the Word? And you're saying some crazy idea, and they say, hey, bro, I think you're crazy. That protects you. So read the Bible, study doctrine, and join a church. That'll protect your soul. But what about for the church? And I think this is a collective thing that we need together to have. And the first thing is an unshakable commitment to the preaching of the Word and the teaching of sound doctrine. Right? What did Paul tell Timothy? Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Why? Because there will come a day where people will gather teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Are we in that day? We're in that day. So let us be unapologetically committed to preaching the wonderful truths of the Bible, of the Gospel. Let's, let's just preach it. And see how God uses it to transform people from falsehood to the truth. So, here's the deal. You want this church to continue to be held accountable to preach the Gospel of the Bible unapologetically. So do that so that we can Protect the sheep. Protect the sheep. That's what, that's what preaching does. It protects the sheep. Second thing, arm itself doctrinally. That's what the church must do. Arm itself doctrinally. I get that language from a quote from Al Mohler. Al Mohler is uh, fabulous at, if you listen to the daily briefing, I would, if you don't, I would encourage you to do so. Do, do so. It's a helpful thing. 20 minutes is great. But he's really good at exegeting culture from a biblical worldview. He's understanding the rise of secularism, the, a lot of the Jesus minus, Jesus plus, Jesus for, Jesus for stuff is just wreaking havoc in the church, and he helps us to get and think uh, well about these things. He says this in his book, uh, The Coming Storm, uh, The Great Storm. He 
says, the church must stand on confessional fidelity as a hallmark of its identity. The faith once delivered to the saints must be expressed and defined and uh, defended in confessional form. We must define what we believe and hold each other accountable to that confessional identity. Churches and denominations that know confession of faith or have confession of faith in name only, there it is, disarm themselves doctrinally. The short end of it is this, that we have gone to great lengths over the last 30 plus years to be theological minimalists, so to promote unity. Right? We believe these five things, and that's it. Well, in some ways, that was a good goal, to promote unity across denominations and differing theological positions. But the net effect of that as well is that people in the pew have no idea about a more robust theology, a more robust faith that has answers to a lot of questions that are coming at it in the world. And so they're disarmed. So, yeah, as an elder team, we've adopted the New Hampshire Confession. It's more than our statement of faith. And i got to be honest, I probably shouldn't even say this publicly, but it's got me thinking, should Renovation Church adopt a more of a robust confession to answer the deeper questions so as to be protective of the sheep? That doesn't mean we can't partner with other churches that differ in, in certain things. But I think we should be thinking about more theology, not less, as a church. And the last thing I'm going to say is this, that as a church we need to be faithful in practicing church discipline restoratively. Right? That's, we talk about how do we deal with sin and error in the church. Well, we've committed ourselves to pursuing one another. That if a, a brother or sister wanders from the faith, guess what? We go after them. And we call them to repentance. And we seek for their restoration. And the church discipline has been lost. It even sounds bad the way we say, church discipline, like somebody's going to spank me? No, somebody's going to love you by pursuing you, by running after you into the road when there's oncoming traffic doctrinally to pull you out and love you in that way. That's what church discipline is meant to do, lovingly restore a brother or sister. And that's what is so critical in the life of a church. We protect one another when we lovingly, mercifully, firmly, uh, out of relationship, one another in that way. We must do that. So, we beware of false prophets as Christians and as churches when we do those things. When it comes to recognizing false prophets, we don't just listen with our ears, we look with our eyes. We listen for the subtlety in their words. And we look for the inconsistencies in their lives. So we are on high alert. Yes. So wake up. Ready yourself. The level is raised by Jesus. Beware of false prophets. Beware of false teachers. They will lead you astray subtly, incrementally. They're very dangerous to the health of the Christian, the health of the church. But even as we are on high alert, this does not mean that we are a highly unchristian church. That we're, right, we're, we're a people that still rest in the assurance of Christ our Savior, our protector, our prophet. So I just want to leave you with that. 
as you are on high alert, be deep in gospel assurance. Be deep in assurance of Christ's identity as the true prophet. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the truth. Over 70 times he says, truly, truly, I say to you. He's talking as the prophet. Hebrews chapter 1 says that long ago in many times and in many places, God spoke through the prophets, but now he has spoken through Jesus, his son. Jesus is the true prophet. And he is our teacher. And he is our provider. As he says in John, the gospel of John chapter 16, that even though he's gone, that he will give the spirit of truth to be in us. He'll teach you. He'll guide you. He'll lead you into all truth. We can rest in the provision of the Spirit. Amen? So if we're worried, yeah, be on high alert, but rest in the assurance that the Spirit of God has been provided to you to protect you. And Jesus said, right, no one can snatch them out of my hand. Jesus said, I will build my church. and The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen? Be on high alert. Look out for false prophets, right? Listen to the subtlety, yes. Look at the inconsistencies, yes. But rest in Christ. He's your prophet. He's your provider. He's your protector. Amen? Let's pray. Faithful witness to Brewerton and beyond. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.